Um, I, I, truly, this is how I want to open this, this day. It's, it's, look, like here's the deal. Everybody's smiling. Everybody's giggly. Um, but let's, like, let's just get all the, the random awkward words out. So um, penis, vagina, breasts, masturbation. Are you guys good? Your, your middle school giggles out? Uh, that's going to be the first thing that someone hears on a podcast at some point during the week, and so God bless you if you're listening. Um, today, this is my big prayer for us, that we would apply God's word on sex. It is truly uh, uh, this subject that we have done a very poor job of talking about as the church over the years that we're going to talk about. And as a result, because we've been silent and confused and shamed, and I'm going to talk about this, because we've kind of been shamed into silence as Christians about this God-given gift to us called sex, our culture has run rampant. And you see songs from the 80s that just say, let's talk about sex, Right? But then there's other songs that are a little bit more recent, like one from Bruno Mars that you might know that was on the radio. It was called Heaven. You guys know this song? Ain't no one. Okay, I'm gonna read you the lyrics. Uh, this is what it says. Never had much faith in love or miracles. Never wanna put my heart on the line. But swimming in your water, hello, swimming in your water is something spiritual. I'm born again every time you spend the night because your sex takes me to paradise. Your sex takes me to paradise. Like so much for subtlety, right? I mean, there's just not a lot of subtlety in that. And if you want to kind of go into more modern realities, I don't know if you're Ariana Grande fans or if your daughters are, but turn it off for them. My goodness, she has got some explicit lyrics out there, such as break up with your girlfriend. This is her, her newest song that's on the radio right now. Break up with your girlfriend. Yeah, yeah, because I'm bored. You can hit it in the morning, yeah, yeah, like it's yours. If you don't know what that means, it's a reference to sex. You guys okay? This is like, y'all all just like clammed up on me. We can't do that. We can't be clammy on this one. We gotta like get in. We just, this is like, this is real life. Like, if they, hopefully, if you're single in the house, you've gotten enough warnings to where you, you know what you're into right now. And if you're married in the house, hopefully this is just going to be one of those things where you're like, yeah, man, let's just let's break the dam and let's just start talking about this in a healthy and beautiful way. I realize that we're going to tackle some of this. This is a, like someone said, an exciting topic. I think Amy prayed this, but also a very intimate one. It is very uh, uh, delightful to talk about and yet also very dangerous. And so we'll talk a little bit about that. But look, sex isn't just something, uh, at least our, our culture is saying something to pursue. It's something that we do to kill time, Ariana Grande would do, would say. Not only that, but it's adultery in her eyes. So those are just two examples of songs that the radio pipes into our ears on a regular basis. And I wonder if we're aware of that because if you've hung out with anyone that's not from this country, um, what you will find uh, is that when they come into this country, they see us as being very desensitized to the things around us, to the songs that are on the radio. They find us very desensitized to the soft porn that is on our TVs. See Game of Thrones. See Game of Thrones. To, uh, to all sorts of things that, are, that are, we've let into our living rooms, into our cars. They, they, the, our culture flaunts sexual morality and adultery. If you don't believe me, just watch 90% of the romantic comedies that are out there. It's all about being committed to one person and something better comes along. And they have to battle through that. That's apparently what romance is. 
Oddly enough, our culture does not flaunt marital, committed, intimate sex, but casual, seemingly consequence-free sex, which is fantasy land. There is always consequence to casual sex. So our culture continues to be confused by this. We are, we, if you don't know this, are, we identify ourselves by our sexual preferences now. Um, so this is the language, right? I identify as homosexual. I identify as heterosexual. I identify as transgender. I identify as um, asexual or gender fluid. I don't know what that means, um, that you just go from one to the other, like it's just some sort of a choice. But we, that's who we are. And so our culture is brainwashing us to think, this is who I am, therefore I must be able to do X, Y, or Z. And if you prohibit me from doing X, Y, or Z, then you are a homophobe or a transphobe or an aphobe or a whatever-phobe. It's who they are, and they therefore have the right to X, Y, or Z. And so there's this, there's this identity leading and justifying sinful behavior on all sorts of levels. It doesn't, I'm not just pointing out homosexuality or transsexuality. Also, serial marriage, like heterosexual sex outside of God's intended design. And so it's not just one or the other. We're all hearing this on all sorts of levels. This is not a talk about condemning one preference to another or one identity to another. Instead, don't hear me say that. Instead, uh, it is to highlight the confusion that we're in. Because the church has stayed silent on this issue, our culture has nowhere to turn but to themselves. And so how did we get to this crazy place? Well, first I want to talk about a little bit of history on the Christian thought of sex because I think it's fascinating to get to this point on where we are. But first, before I get there, I want you to know this. In the Bible and in Christian thought, there is always, always throughout church history, um, is there this communicated desire for God's design for biblical marriage to be between a male and a female, one and one, and that those two would no longer become two people, but they would be united and intimate into one person, one flesh. Paul describes that as that happening during the act of sexual intimacy, not just through marriage, but also through sexual intimacy. And so you read passages in the earliest pages of the Bible in Genesis 2, which would say this, 24 and 25, therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked, and they were not ashamed. In the beginning of time was this beautiful design of nakedness and the absence of shame and ultimate intimacy that was found during sex. This is how the two became one. This is the most intimate a man and woman can become by becoming one flesh, by intimating themselves with one another. And therefore, and I want you to hear this part, if, if that is how we are, that's the ultimate uh, uh, picture of intimacy is physical union uh, through sex, then therefore, the logic would determine that any sex that does not, that is devoid of intimate relationship is less than what God designed for you. Let me say that one more time. Because God has so said that this ultimate expression of intimacy is through physical uh, oneness, 
The opposite is also true. Any oneness, any physical uh, uh, combining or intimation at all that is devoid of relationship, particularly that of marriage, is not what God has designed for you. So let me just unpack this for a little bit. So um, there's this word in the New Testament. It's a Greek word. You, you might be familiar with it. It's porneia. Porneia, um, where we get our word pornography. It is this umbrella word uh, of sexual immorality, is porneia, sexual immorality. It's this, this big word under which all sorts of specific sexual acts that are sinful kind of get put underneath. And so there's this call throughout the scriptures to flee sexual immorality, to not divorce your husband or your wife except for sexual immorality. That, that tends to mean that that means something. Uh, this idea of porneia. And um, as, if we look at porneia, what we see in that is that it's not just pornography. It's, again, sex outside of a relationship. I want you to hear that. If, if God has intended us to have sex inside of a relationship, of a marital relationship, then any other sex act that is outside of a relationship is sexual immorality. So pornography, prostitution, there's no relationship there. There's no intimate covenant relationship there that God has designed for us to enjoy. So pornography, that is what's called, so we believe in the incarnation of Jesus, that Jesus left heaven to come to earth and it's the incarnation. He became one of us. He took on flesh. Pornography is excarnational. There's no flesh there. It's, it's a fantasy. It's not real. It's a screen. And so there's no intimation of physical flesh, which is what God has designed. So pornography falls underneath this, right? Uh, prostitution falls underneath this because not only, yes, there is physical uh, uh, intimation and physical flesh there, but there's no emotional intimacy. That's all underneath this idea of sexual immorality, right? Is pornography, prostitution, adultery, sex with yourself in secret, all that is a part of this, escaping within the act of sex, is sex that is less than what God desires. Only sex that is the result of an intimate marital relationship is the kind of sex that God has not only designed, but blesses. Do y'all feel me on that? Like God has designed sex. It's not, not, not something that's dirty or that we don't need to talk about. He's designed it and blesses it. There's no one saying amen in here. Do you, I mean, y'all have kids. Y'all have done this before, yes? <laughs> Holy moly, y'all are like looking at me like I'm from Mars right now. I don't know, sir. Pastor, this is inappropriate. You said penis and I'm offended. All right, I'm gonna bring you back now. Look, this is the history, right? So our church fathers, here's the reality. Our church fathers were all celibate men who then instructed us on how to have sex. That's a problem. So they're celibate men because they believe that God wants them to be celibate and not only them as part of the clergy of the Roman Catholic Church early on, but also for all people. And so St. Augustine, if you don't know anything about St. Augustine, he wrote a book called The Confessions. You should read it if you're dealing with lust because he is a man that struggled deeply with lust before he became a believer. In fact, he is known uh, for praying prayers like this. Lord, grant me self-control, but not yet. Like that's a man that's struggling, but not really. 
And so he, he, he dives into that. And so when he becomes a believer, he becomes the Bishop of Hippo, very influential uh, in understanding doctrine even today. Um, he, he swings the pendulum the other way. And now he is teaching as the uh, theological authority for all Christians at the time that sex is only to be for procreation. Only to be for procreation. Um, and so it's not to be enjoyed. It is, and in fact, he also taught that we should, as married people, abstain from sexual uh, intercourse because it is a form of spiritual discipline. And get this, it chastens Christ's return. In other words, this is what he's saying. If you will abstain from having sex, Jesus will come quicker. He'll get here quicker. If you would just... Uh, just prevent yourself from having that pleasure. Jesus will, his return will be chastened. Amazing. Um, and this caught on throughout the years, right? This was the, the, the law from like early 300s, 400s, all the way until the 15, mid-1500s with the Reformation. But before that, there were uh, Roman Catholic uh, church laws that said if a, if a couple was caught in the act of sex and the woman was on top, she was to be burned at the stake. You wanna know Why? Because being on top was not one uh, where you would procreate. That was one that you just enjoyed. And any woman that enjoyed sex was a witch. So she gone. That's pretty terrible. This is in our history as, as Christians. Celibacy was the ultimate mark of faithfulness to Jesus. And sex was a concession to those who were weaker in your faith. And they get this from the Bible. Much like all false teachings, it comes right out, right out of God's word. So it's not enough just to know God's word. It's enough to know God's word in God's context. Because they take 1 Corinthians 7, which hopefully will come up on the screen, verses 1 and 2. This is where they get this. 1 Corinthians 7, 1 and 2. And it would say this. This is Paul now speaking on how to, what you need to do as far as if you're burning with passion, he says. Now concerning the matters to which you wrote... It is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. So in the book of 1 Corinthians, um, he is basically talking about how um, they're writing him certain topics. And so there's quotes here um, in, this, in this particular passage. There's quotes that says, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. This is their quote to him, and now he's giving it back to them. He goes, but because of the temptation to sexual morality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. So the way they would read that is, we want you to be faithful to Jesus, but if you lack faith, then you go and get married and have sex. It is a concession, and so marriage was not this ultimate expression of humanity. Instead, it was like, hey, look, you really need to love Jesus, and if you don't love him enough, just go ahead and get married. And when you get married, don't even you know, think about having sex all the time. Matter of fact, the RCC, Roman Catholic Church, restricted sex to only Tuesdays and Wednesdays of the week. I know, we're already frustrated. <laughs> Tuesdays and Wednesdays, that is, anyways, all right. This continued on, <laughs> this continued on in the Reformation, right? The Reformation was in the 1500s, mid-1500s. Um, if I've got my dates right, it could be the 1400s. I don't know, I'm all flustered now. Uh, so, look, they taught to abstain, they taught that abstinence from sex within marriage was not just foolish, but you were inviting the devil's temptation Exactly like the rest of that passage says in 1 Corinthians 7. Verse 5 says this, do not deprive one another. He's talking about sex. Like Paul's spicy. Do not deprive one another except maybe, perhaps, 
by agreement for a limited time, that you may devote yourselves to prayer, but then come together again so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. God knows we have no self-control over this appetite that's in us, and he has created marriage not just for this reason, but has allowed in this reason for us to find that satisfaction within a marital relationship. Not as a concession, but for our delight and to glorify him. The Victorian era came along, and Queen Victoria famously said this regarding sex, lie back and think of the empire. The women that were under her tutelage were encouraged to endure, not enjoy sex. She was the head of the church, head of the Church of England. And so we've got churches throughout all of history basically saying, don't enjoy this, endure it. And I think that we kind of have picked up on that attitude as we've gotten a little bit away from that. Pregnant women in the Victorian area were encouraged to stay indoors to avoid the, the appearance of the results of sex. So from the get-go, we've got this denial of passion, denial of joy, and passion and joy was regularly denied legitimacy. If we fast forward to the women's, right, women's rights movement and the sexual revolution, which gave way to feminism, women were not just hailed as equals to men, but competitors to men in the workplace as well as in all Things And so now all of a sudden, instead of having a relationship between males and females that were marked with trust and submission and complementarianism, it is marked with competition, leading us into where we are now, confused, competitive, and dismissive of whatever the Bible has to say on this topic, because we have proven to be silent and prude since our inception as the church. So we got to talk about sex, right? Thank you, salt and pepper. We gotta talk about this. This is part, a big part of our marital lives, a big part of what we all long for whenever we were single and now we're here. And, and, and I always tell people this in premarital counseling, like Satan will do whatever it takes to get you into bed with one another before your marriage and he will do whatever it takes to keep you out of bed after your marriage. So we gotta be aware of his schemes as we get into this conversation. So now, here's the deal. Here's what I believe. I believe that our, all of our little bitty kids that when we started the Grove, they were all just little bitty things. Now we're starting to get preteen, starting to get hormones, their bodies are changing, they're starting to get into middle school. Oh, there's been some that have been in high school for, for a while and you guys are gonna show us and tell us what to do and what not to do, but they're all gonna grow up in this crazy culture where Ariana Grande and, and whomever else comes next and Ed Sheeran and, and, and just whoever, I mean, whatever, Billie Eilish, I don't even know who that is, but I don't want to, and so there's that problem I think I have, and so all these things are gonna start speaking to them, and they're gonna wonder, are we gonna be silent as parents? Their friends are gonna wonder, are we gonna be silent about our kids, or are we gonna kind of be cleaning up the mess? Will we be proactive in our conversations with them? Because there is a conversation that needs to be had, if we haven't had it already. To do that, I think we have to understand what's God's vision of sex, which we just read. So let's read God's vision of sex, which I think is pretty difficult. Actually, really difficult the more I studied it. I just kept reading this and, and, and then calling Melissa in the room and being like, man, this is just so difficult to live out. And she was like, yeah, that, that sounds really, really difficult. So uh, Proverbs 5, 15 through 19. I'll read it again. 
So we can understand what God's vision is here for, uh, for sex. Drink water from your own cistern, flowing water from your own well. Should your springs be scattered abroad, streams of water in the streets, let them be for yourself alone and not for strangers with you. Let your fountain be blessed and rejoice in the wife of your youth, who's a lovely deer, a graceful doe. Let her breasts fill you at all times with delight. Be intoxicated always in her love. I wish I had a Barry Manilow voice and I would do it right there. Be intoxicated with love, baby. Right? So God wants us, look, we read this. Is this a, is this a, is this a God that wants us to, to suppress sex, that wants us to be silent about sex? No. At the end of this, let her breasts fill you with all times with delight. Be intoxicated with her love. I mean, when I go through premarital, I go, hey, man, God wants you to get drunk on each other's love. And they just look at me and they go, you're not supposed to say that. That's incorrect. But that's what the Bible says. And we have somehow gotten around this. And unfortunately, Christian leaders have suppressed the basic language of passages like this one and Song of Solomon. And because we've become so unfamiliar and uncomfortable with the idea of sex, we allegorize this. And so I was taught from a very young Christian age, oh, Song of Solomon isn't really what you think it is. It's an allegorization of God's love for his people. Okay, that's still weird, man. Because if you read the Song of Solomon, and all of you are going to go do that this week, apparently all your quiet times are going to be in Song of Solomon this week. Song of Solomon, look at it. There's an assertive, sexually assertive wife in Song of Solomon. There's, there's this celebration of oral sex. There's a strip tease. There is a delight in the pleasure that is found in sex. And there is even sex in a vineyard. Hey, that's an erotic book, man. You can't get around that. You can't just allegorize that and just be like, oh, that's all about God's love for his people. He wants to have sex with me in a vineyard? I'm not. I'm really weirded out. <laughs> Look, we got to unpack this a little bit, right? So here's my first point, even though I'm like 20 minutes into this thing already. Water is basic and so is sex. Water is basic and so is sex. Let's read. We just read it, but it says this. Drink water from your own cistern. Drink water from your own cistern. Flowing water from your own well. It's this picture of, of this arid desert land that Canaan or Israel was at the time, and they would store water in a cistern or a basin in the ground. And he's basically saying, you're not allowed to steal that water from one another. You drink water from your own cistern. So if you're, if you're in the desert, you want to store water, right? If you're, if, and hopefully you, you've got a well nearby. When we go to India and we start thinking about all the places that we go throughout the world, we want to make sure there's, there's clean, available water wherever there is, wherever the people are living, so they can have the, a basic understanding and access to a basic need. God, in his infinite wisdom, says sex is the same thing. Just as water is as basic to your survival and you get dehydrated, there is no shame and saying, I have a need that needs to be satisfied within the context of marriage. It is a basic human need just like water. So the, the, drink water from your own sister. It is basic. 
Proverbs 9, 17 says, stolen water is sweet and bread eaten in secret is pleasant. In that context, water is talking about this sexual appetite. So second, so first, water is likened to the sexual appetite. Second, this water, this sexual appetite is, of course, part of our basic survival as humans. To deny this part of who we are is to deny that God has created us as sexual beings, as male and female who have complementary parts. Okay, that is to, to deny that. And I just want you to hear this. Like, God's view of sex isn't a secondary desire for a need, or a need for a man or a woman, but as primary as water. And so when your spouse says, I would really like to have sex four times a week or one time a week or however many times a week, they're trying to express to you a basic desire that they have. There is an appetite in them that might be different than yours, but you need to talk about what is your appetite and what is your appetite and figure out a way to quench your thirst in your own cistern. You hearing me? Four of you that heard me, good. So when we're talking about this, it is as natural as you saying, I'm like, I'm parched. We were out at Lake Travis this week and I was out on the patio and one afternoon like researching for our, our sermon today and I was sitting still, it was 104 degrees outside and my bald head was sweating and making pools of, of sweat on my laptop. I just kept having to wipe it away. I was parched, I was thirsty, I was dehydrated. As natural as that was for me to come in and go, man, I need some water, so is it natural for us to go inside of a marital context and say, I also need sex. That feels weird to say, probably even weirder to hear. Not only is water basic and so is sex, but here's my second point. Marital sex is a source of joy over the long haul. Look at what it continues to say. Verse 18, let your fountain be blessed and rejoice in the wife of your youth, a lovely deer, a graceful doe. Rejoice in the wife of your youth. Don't hear this the wrong way. Don't hear, you, hear it saying, rejoice in a youthful wife. That's not what it's saying. Okay, that's not what it's saying. It's not saying, she's old, I'm out. Gotta go get a youthful wife. And so you have this serial marriage that, look around, it happens, right? This is where the idea of trophy wife came from. That we rejoice in a youthful wife, not in the wife of your youth. And so what is the Bible telling us to do in all this? Is that as we grow older, as, as sex no longer has this allure of mystery and it becomes a part of the routine of life, he's still saying, delight in that Look back and realize, remember how beautiful your spouse was when you first got married? Remember, she's and he's the standard of beauty. That never changes. Not youthfulness, not something unknown, but the standard of beauty is now your spouse. The standard of, of, of everything that is beautiful is now your spouse. And so as you get older, you start thinking, or you could start to be tempted at youthful things, male or female. But instead, God is calling us, no, no, remember and rejoice in the standard of beauty which God provided for you and your spouse. Rejoice, delight in that. What a great thing for God to say to us. It is a call to exclusive marital fidelity. And he continues on. This is maybe my, one of my favorite um, passages in all the Bible. Verse 19. 
Let her breasts fill you at all times with delight, be intoxicated always in her love. The reason why I like it is because it just makes people squirm, makes, makes people feel awkward. Um, but this is, um, this, is, this is what the Bible says. It is the wife of your youth's body that is to be the source of not just duty, but delight. Rejoice. There's joy in what God has provided for you in the wife or the husband of your youth. And so here's how I see this is like you can view sex kind of like you view food. Um, some people um, live to eat and other people eat to live, right? They just eat because it's like that's what we gotta do to live. Like when you go on vacation, you figure out which person you are because you spend most of your time thinking about where am I gonna eat? If you're a live to eat person, you're thinking about what restaurants are around you at kind of all times. And so you can kind of think of sex that way. Are you gonna do it just because you have to or are you gonna do it and find ways, new ways to delight in it, to rejoice in it, to be intoxicated in it? And you can see that in one of two ways. So one honors God more than the other, and God's desire for us is to enjoy sex, to enjoy the breasts of the wife of your youth. Now, let me come around here and talk to the women. This is gonna hurt. Or it might, you just, it might be something that you think about. Um, the Bible says to your husband, right? Let her breasts fill you at all times with delight, be intoxicated always in her love. How can he do that if you won't let him? If access is always denied, how can he be satisfied in the wife of his youth? How can he rejoice in what God has provided for him? Will he be able, will you allow access to, for him to literally obey God and enjoy sex with his wife? And then, let me go now over here to the males. Because if there's a female application, what is it? Like if, if the male re requirement is let her breasts fill you at all times with, with delight, what's the female requirement of that? Anybody wanna say it out loud? No, just the guy with the microphone? All right, I'll, I've written it down because I knew I would get flustered at this point. If the female application of this passage is enjoy the penis of the husband of your youth, how then can she do that if you're always busy or distracted or playing a video game for crying out loud? When will you treat her like, yeah, that's what it says, right? A lovely deer, a graceful doe. Who's been, who's been deer hunting in here? You might been deer hunting? You plan on going deer hunting in the fall? Uh-huh, yep. And when you, when you plan on going deer hunting, there's all sorts of preparation that you must undergo. Like you gotta go to academy, you gotta get your hunting license, you gotta get proper ammo, you gotta make sure that, that gun is clean. You gotta go probably out to the ranch at least like two or three times, make sure those feeders are full and they're feeding those deer, right? Look at all that preparation to go kill a deer. How much more preparation is the satisfaction that is found in your wife? Will you intentionally pursue her? Will you, will you spend your money and your time thinking about ways to, quote unquote, feed the deer? Attract. We, we saw this, this skink on the trail the other day that had a blue turquoise tail. And we were like, what is he doing? He's just twirling that thing around. I was like, I think he's doing his mating dance and we're messing up his mojo. We gotta get out of here. 
Like, that's the thing that God wants us to do. He's created all animals literally on the planet. Just watch any documentary. Be doing this dance for your lady. <laughs> I just... <laughs> but it's true, right? We've got to put in some effort. If you want to put it down into, like, layman's terms, we're microwaves and they're ovens. It's just a slow heat. Right? And so we've got to prepare. We've got to be able to do that. Put our phone down. Say no to work. Spend time connecting, placing high value of time, energy, intentionality towards her in gentleness, not to earn the reward, but because you love her. See, that's the trick, man. Not because you're trying to get points for later, but because if that never happens, you're going to still do it anyways. You love her. See, that's the key in all this. All right, so let's keep reading. Let's be intoxicated always in her love. This is God's desire for us. He wants us to do what? To get drunk on the love of your spouse? So this idea here isn't bad. It's this idea of being carried away in the pleasures that are found in the sex act with your spouse. This, this carried away part of being intoxicated with her love, to get drunk with pleasure, to be swept away in the pleasure of your spouse's erotic love. I've said so many words today I never thought I would say from this stage. Erotic is another one. So I just don't want us to miss this part of God's vision, right? And this is the hard part, and this is the difficult part for us. Let her breasts fill you at all times with delight and be intoxicated always in her love. There is a qualitative nature to the kind of sex that God wants us to have, that it should be of high quality as Christians. Like, no one should be, be having better sex than Christians. No one. And, this is the difficult part, there's also this quantitative nature to sex. Always, right? Like, all times. There's also this, like, frequency of good sex. Now, we're human, right? That doesn't always happen. And so there's some difficulties that we need to navigate real quick. I didn't say this was gonna be a short sermon, so we're maybe halfway through. Look, there's two obstacles to this vision that God's put, up, put down for us. And one is this, the most difficult thing that will be, need to be said today. The first obstacle to this kind of vision, I mean, if you look at this beautiful vision that we're gonna be, we're gonna be monogamous, we're gonna find delight and joy inside of marriage, inside of a sexual relationship, inside of marriage, let your fountain be blessed. Let rejoice in the wife of your youth. Let her breasts fill you at all times. Be intoxicated always. If we're gonna find that kind of vision for us, there are obstacles in the way. And these are only two. There are many more that I just can't unpack. But one of them is this, and that is sexual abuse. Some of you, unfortunately, have been victims of heinous injustices that were committed against you, both as an adult or as a child. And I, I just want to tell you that we're, we're, we hurt for you and we hurt with you. Because all this time that we've been giggling and kind of making light of this, this God-given gift of sex, you've been in knots. And you've been... You've been wondering like, why do I feel this way? And why do I feel like this is not appropriate and dirty? And all the things that come along with the emotional scars of having been sexually abused. You have probably dealt with knots and sorrow and shame. You have wrestled with questions about God's goodness, his sovereignty, 
If he's all powerful, what, what the heck? If he's in all places, where was he for that? Deep, hard, hard questions. If that's true, uh, discerning truth and lies is probably one of your greatest battles, especially in regards to sex. And I just want to encourage you to bring to light what the enemy wants to keep in the darkness. Number one, it's not your fault. Someone else did this. It's heinous. It's an injustice. It is what it, like, there's no way to make light of it. And so if that's you, would you, would you like, if you have the courage to come talk to us about it, talk to me about it, talk to one of our elders or our deacons, we would love to sit down with you and put out a path for you of hope and healing. There are two resources, if you don't feel comfortable with that, that are by a, a guy by the name of Dan Allender. One is his podcast called The Allender Podcast. He handles all sorts of issues. The other one is if you can sit still long enough to read. It's a book called The, uh, the Wounded Heart. It's an unbelievable book that will help guide you without anyone else, just with Dan Allender on, on a page, help guide you through healing the wounded heart. If you're married to someone who's been abused, uh, let me encourage you to proceed carefully to err on the side of caution and grace and mercy. Your spouse has gone through more than you will ever imagine. And they have probably heaped shame upon shame upon themselves because that's the trick of the enemy. It was to convince you that you're no longer worthy and it's not true. There has been a war waged on your spouse's soul for longer than you know and with greater impact than you can ever imagine. Be patient, be gentle. And finally, for those that are victims of such abuse, Jesus has cleansed you. He's made you pure. He's made you new. He is the promised Messiah that has come to bring newness to wipe the slate clean, to give you mercy every day, to start to make sense of what all has happened throughout life. So if that's you, let me just encourage you to seek him, seek good counsel, counsel and wisdom, but don't suffer silently anymore. It's been long enough. It's been long enough. So that's one unbelievably difficult obstacle to this vision. Like, how can we do that if all that is in my history? That's tough. The only way to do that is, is slowly over time to break out of some of that stuff with the help of people that love you. But the other one is, is all over the scriptures. And that is adultery. Not just abuse, but adultery. So this passage, Proverbs 5, 15 through 19, is in the middle of four chapters on warnings against adultery. I just wanna read you the first part. Proverbs 5, one through 14. If you wanna know why this is so uh, misogynist in, in some language, like have her breasts fill you, it's because it's in the middle of the context of a father speaking to a son about what to do and what not to do sexually in life. And so he says this in verse one, my son, be attentive to my wisdom, incline your ear, to my understanding, that you may keep discretion and that your lips may guard knowledge and for the lips of a forbidden woman drip honey. Look, it looks good, it looks sweet. Probably will taste that way. And her speech, oh man, 
smoother than oil. But in the end, she is bitter as wormwood, sharp as a two-edged sword. Her feet, they go down to death. Her steps follow the paths to Sheol. She does not ponder the path of life. Her ways wander, and she does not know it. And now, sons, oh, listen to me, and do not depart from the words of my mouth. Keep your way far from her, and do not go near the door of her house, lest you give your honor to others and your years to the merciless." lest strangers take their fill of your strength and your labors go to the house of a foreigner. At the end of your life, this is what happens. At the end of your life, you groan when your flesh and body are consumed and you're old and you say, oh, how I hated discipline and my heart despised reproof. I did not listen to the voice of my teachers or incline my ear to my instructors. I am at the brink of utter ruin in the assembled congregation. Skip down to verse 20. We've already read 15 to 20, this, this vision for God, for, of God for our sex lives. And then verse 20. For why should you be intoxicated, my son, with a forbidden woman and embrace the bosom of an adulteress? And here's the ultimate kind of motivator. For man's ways are before the eyes of the Lord and he ponders all his paths. You want motivation to stay pure and clean inside of marriage or even before marriage or after? The Lord is looking. He's watching. So there is this other barrier that keeps us from that, not just abuse, but also adultery. And this is ultimately God's way of saying for us that we, if our, our fountain needs to be blessed, then we do that inside the confines of that which God has provided so let's apply the text, shall we? So because we've historically struggled with how to talk about sex as God's people, we've limited our instruction within the church about sex to wait until you're married. We've all heard that. It's been good advice. But now that we're married, now what? If you can hang with me verses a little bit longer. How do we pursue a fruitful, fulfilling, high in quality, frequent in quantity sex life within marriage? First things first, do so in freedom. Like God is notoriously about our freedom. So Hebrews 13, four would say this, let, the, let marriage be held in high honor among all and let the marriage bed be undefiled. There's other passages that say, keep the marriage bed undefiled. It's already undefiled. It says this, for God will judge the sexually immoral, the porneia, and the adulteress. The marriage bed is already pure and undefiled. And so when we look at the marriage bed, we usually have two struggles. We either call pure things evil, and so we abstain from things that really aren't evil at all, but because we're just not familiar with X, Y, or Z, we don't want to do it. Or we go the other route within the marriage bed, and we call evil things pure. So there are some things in life that are just like easy, right? Right? Like an open marriage. Like apparently when we moved to Pecan Grove, someone told me, you know, there's like this really big swingers club in Pecan Grove. And I was like, I did not know that. I'm so glad I'm raising my children here. If you don't know what swingers are, don't Google it instead. It's about husbands and wives sharing one another with whomever else. And so apparently that's amongst us. I've never met anybody that's part of that, but apparently that's a thing. Like, that's an easy thing for you to look at and go, okay, so I don't think it's that kind of freedom. That's not permissible in the scriptures, right? And so we, we, we need to both understand, though, that we, that's, that's, not an, that's an evil thing, and we need to call it evil, 
We can't say that's evil and then call it good. So for us, we need to depend on the Spirit as we walk in freedom. Yes, depend on the Spirit for your sex life. Have you prayed to God about how to please your spouse? He is the fountain of all wisdom. He did write the book of Proverbs and everything else. What a great piece of advice in freedom that we would work forward. The other one is in seeking the other's good. 1 Corinthians 7, 3 through 5. The husband shall give to his wife her conjugal rights. That's interesting, Paul. The husband shall get, should give to his wife her conjugal rights and likewise the wife to her husband. AKA, I've saved this thing for marriage. I'm gonna give it to you and you alone. Verse four, for the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. And likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Do not deprive one another except perhaps by agreement or for a limited time that you should devote yourselves to prayer. But then come together again so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self control. There is this idea of mutual submission and mutual ownership as two people who were purchased by Jesus. Now, I'll just say this, like husbands, if you roll in and you tell your wife, hey, your body belongs to me, you're going to find out really quickly, no, it doesn't. Just as a warning, because the Bible says that your body belongs to me. Well, that would be a misuse and an abuse of scripture. And sure enough, be aware and be prepared for the desert land for however long. <laughs> right? So we, we, we are called to be intimate, to be de not depriving of one or except by agreement. And so there's, two, again, two things that we usually think about. Like how much do I have to do inside of a, a sexual relationship? And then like how far can we go in a sexual relationship? And, and how do we navigate those waters? Like how much do I have to? And then how much do I get to? And again, we've got to depend on the spirit to be able to understand that. But I would say this, talk about it. As husband and wife, have the conversation. Because here's what 1 Corinthians 7 is gonna tell us. It's gonna tell us that you're gonna have a conversation. You're either gonna have a good, clean conversation to begin all that, or you're gonna have a really messy conversation after you've deprived one another and one of you've strayed, and one of you gone looking, one of you starts chatting with an ex-girlfriend or ex-boyfriend on Facebook, and all of a sudden that turns into something emotional or something worse, then you have that conversation that's super messy. Either way, you're gonna talk about it. So will you talk about it in a clean, proactive way, or will you talk about it not in the way that God wants for us? How will we pursue that? There's so much more that I have to say. I wish it was like a two-parter. But ultimately, is this. This is my bottom line. God created sex. He created our sex organs. He also put millions of nerve endings right like in our sex organs. He knew that that would be a point of pleasure. He knew that that would be a point of gratification. And he wants us to enjoy him as we satisfy those basic needs within a monogamous marital relationship. So here's my challenge to all of you. No, I'm not gonna be the guy like Ed Young Jr. who was in Dallas, who like put a bed on top of his church for however many days, which was weird. You didn't know that happened? It happened. 
No. Instead, would you guys just commit yourself to conversation this week? Would you commit yourself to have conversation about like what your actual needs are as husband? What your needs are, what your desires are even better as a wife? Would you commit yourself to that conversation and then go and delight yourself? Like may we be, if there's like a baby boom in nine months, we're gonna know why, which is beautiful. But let us be a people that enjoy what God has given us. Delight ourselves, acting in freedom and yet at the same time in deference to one another. Would we be a people that set the stage and set the pace for the culture around us? This is gonna sound weird, but what if our, our, our desire for our husband and our wife was a means of evangelism to the lost around us? That we would so enjoy our spouse that other people look at that kind of love and they go, that's different than what Ariana Grande has to say. I, I want that. What would that look like for us? Finally, let's pray. Father, would you help us? This is such an intense topic, one where truly I could go on and on about. But Lord, you have given us enough to chew on for weeks probably. So Lord, would you help us understand what your scriptures say through Proverbs 5 and of course one I've referenced many times, 1 Corinthians 7. And would you help us see the difficult waters that we're navigating with our culture and our backgrounds and your call to this beautiful vision to be satisfied, to find joy and beauty and delight in our spouse. Holy Spirit, would you help us serve one another in these ways? There's no good sex life that serves themselves. So would you help us Love and serve and submit to one another. Lord, I pray for all those that want to misuse the Bible that are in this room and that may hear this message. I pray, Lord, that you, Holy Spirit, would convict them. Let them enter into a conversation with gentleness and openness and questions and not conclusions. I pray that we would have a curiosity of what you would have for us in these ways. Lord, we wanna see your goodness. We wanna see and delight in the blessings that you have for us. When you say, let your fountain be blessed, we know that those blessings come from you. So would you help us be one with our wives? Would you help us be one flesh with our husbands? Would you help us be naked and unashamed? Would you help us physically open up one another? Would you also help us emotionally open up to one another? Spiritually open up to one another? May we stand in front of one another vulnerable, honest, open. Maybe for the first time, a husband will say to his wife, you know, I'd really like to do X. And may that be honoring and glorifying to you. I pray that they would Depend on you, O Holy Spirit, for what's right. And uh, we love you. We love that these passages are in the Bible. We love that they challenge us, that they embarrass us. We love that the Song of Solomon is in the Bible. We've got a whole book of the Bible dedicated to this. So would you help us, Father? Holy Spirit, would you guide us? Would you help us find true freedom within the fidelity of conjugal 
marital love. We love you. Help us. In Jesus' name, amen.